This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au well, let's, um, let's pray together as we dive into God's Word this morning. Father, we thank you that you are a good God. And we thank you that you speak. We thank you that your Word is living and active. It's like a hammer that smashes rock to pieces. It is like a seed that produces a bountiful harvest of righteousness. And so this morning, Father, we want to sit humbly under your word. We pray that you would speak to us powerfully, transform us by your spirit, and make us a people that are more and more like Jesus. We pray this in his strong name, and all of God's people said in one loud voice, amen. When uh, every now and then my family come and visit Australia from South Africa, and there is a predominant reflection that happens. Uh, It's a bit of a shift that occurs for South Africans when they visit or move to Australia, and that is a shift of recognizing that there are some really key differences when it comes to the law here in Australia. My uh, cousins would often say to me, wow, it's it's really strict here in in Australia. You're really strict. I was like, what do you mean by that? Well, like the speed limit. It seems like everyone sticks to the speed limit here in, you know, no one's overtaking on the left here in Australia. It's like this, this general guideline that if you're going to drive slowly, you move to the left. And I mean, seatbelts seem to be a thing here, like everyone wears them. I was like, yeah, you know what, like the speed limit's not just a general guideline. You can't just bribe the police officer when they pull you over and you know, here's a few rand, my friend, take it. And, you know, like, my cousins, honestly, didn't even have number plates on their car. Like, there's too many speed cameras. We would prefer to just get pulled over and bribe the police. I was like, you guys Christians? Or, you know, like, it's just that the law seems to be this general guideline that you would want to obey and not obey. I was like, you know what happens when we have laws like this that generally 99% of the population obey? I said, it creates a really safe culture to live in. Like, you know, our road toll is significantly less than the road toll in South Africa. But that what they're expressing there is this playoff between two values, a value of security and a value of freedom. And those two values seem to me to be opposite ends on a continuum, the values of security and the values of freedom. What we experienced in the last couple of years with lockdowns were temporary, you know, placing value on security and, and, and safety over a value of freedom. We're going to lock everyone down so that this virus does not spread. We're going to keep people safe. And in the way that we're going to do that is to curtail a value of freedom, at least for a period of time. Security and freedom are things that humanity long for. In fact, they're things that humanity needs desperately. And it seems to me that often we begin to search for one of those things and one of those other values begins to diminish. I mean, if you want to have entire and total freedom on where you live, like choose to live and sleep in a different location every single night. I mean, you'll just buy a tent and just camp wherever you want. You buy a van, sleep in the van, move every night, choose your own adventure, be free and just... But if that's not your thing, you'll buy a house because you want security, you want four walls, you want to know where you're sleeping every single night, and you want to feel safe. 
Security and freedom are things that humanity desperately longs for. And what Jesus claims here in John chapter 10, that passage that Hannah read for us, is that he offers both security and freedom without those things conflicting with each other, the fullest sense of security and freedom that you could possibly hope to long for. We have been in this series called Yahweh. And if you remember back to the story of Moses, when he has an encounter with God at the burning bush and God says, I'm gonna send you to set my people free. And Moses says to him, well, when I go, who should I say has sent me? And God says to him, will you tell the people that I am has sent you. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. And that is translated in our Bibles today, at least, by the phrase Yahweh. Or if you read the Old Testament, you see Lord in capital letters. That's the personal covenantal name of God that the Israelites have chosen not to write down out of reverence Yahweh. It is God's revelation of himself to his people. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. And so as Jesus comes... And we read of all of these signs that he gives us in John's gospel. And he uses this phrase, I am, and then puts a metaphor in front of it. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. I am the vine. I am the bread of life. As he unpacks all of those things, it is his way of saying that I am the self-revelation of God in the incarnation of the person of Jesus who has walked the face of this planet. I am. It's Jesus according to Jesus. It is Jesus' own self-revelation of himself. And we live in a period of history where everyone seems to have an opinion about Jesus, but hardly anyone is willing to let Jesus speak for himself. And so this series is about us allowing Jesus to speak for himself. And in John 10, we have this, um, this kind of mingling together of two metaphors. The, the first half, John, uh, Jesus will say, I am the gate. And then halfway through that metaphor, he will introduce this, uh, this concept of being the shepherd. So next week, we'll look at I am the shepherd. But really, it's, it's two metaphors blended into one here. So this is a, a two-part sermon. If you're here this week, you have to come back next Sunday for part two. But Jesus says, I am the gate. I am the gate. And his audience for this message here are the Pharisees. Have a look at verse 1 of chapter 10. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. His key audience here as Jesus is teaching here in John chapter 10 are the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, if you're not aware, are a religious group. They're kind of like a a separatist group within the people of God, and they had a particular key vision for God's people. And their vision was the purity of the people. What they wanted to see happen were were God's people purified according to the law in such a way that they would embody the vision that God had for His people. And so they took all of the laws that were relevant to the priests, the Levitical people, the the Levites, the 12 tribes of Israel, and then the priests, And the priests had a special part of the law that was designed for them, all of these purity laws, because they worked in the temple. They were kind of like the the pastors and priests of the day. And so the Pharisees took all of the laws that pertain to the Levitical priesthood and wanted to lay those laws on top of ordinary 
people in an attempt to purify the people, that the people of God would be living to such a standard that God would look down from heaven and bless them because what he saw was a priestly nation. And now, to be fair, there's some beautiful motives that are a part of that, but what ends up happening is that the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the religious leadership begin to build a fence around the law of God and begin to add all of these other things to it and it becomes to be this burden, this crushing burden that the people of God cannot carry. And so as Jesus speaks, he is speaking here to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. And I I think perhaps some of what has informed this teaching for Jesus are the events that have taken place in John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, Jesus comes across a man who is born blind, and he, he opens the man's eyes. He heals the man. And it's a profound miracle that has taken place. All of the people there are kind of marveling at this miracle. In the first, in a first century Hebrew worldview, a lot of people thought that if you were born blind, it was a sign that either you or your parents had sinned. And so the disciples even asked Jesus that question, who sinned? And he says, neither. He heals the man, and it causes this great kerfuffle amongst the religious leaders. They begin to draw the man in, question him, question his parents. And Jesus sees the attitude there of the religious leaders. And I think it provokes Jesus to use this teaching here in John chapter 10 as a challenge to the religious leadership of the day. This is a challenge of what it means. So if John chapter 9, and their their big problem with Jesus was, heaven forbid that you would ever heal someone on the Sabbath. How dare you, Jesus? The Lord's day. How dare you mix some saliva and mud and put it on a man's eyes and give him sight. This is the Sabbath. It's the Lord's day. There should be no work. And in this confrontation around what leadership looks like, Jesus brings this word. It's a simultaneous challenge to the leadership, but it is also an invitation to the sheep, to the people of God. And this is what he says. Chapter 10, verse 2. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own by name and leads them out. When he had brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. We notice three things here that Jesus tells us about the shepherd. The first is that the sheep listen to his voice. One of the things that we know uh, happened in first century Middle Eastern farming was that often there were these communal sheep pens that existed. In a, you know, in a village, multiple people kept sheep and there would be a communal pen for the sheep. And, and shepherds would often just store all of their sheep collectively in this giant pen. And when it came time for the shepherds to take the sheep out and find pasture, they would often travel for days and and weeks on end. Um, But one of the things they would do is they would come out and call the sheep. And all of a sudden, all of the sheep that belonged to this family recognized the shepherd's voice and would just come out and follow him. The sheep that weren't a part of this shepherd's flock would stay put because... They recognize the tone and sound of their shepherd's voice. They listened 
to the shepherd's voice. Secondly, it says there that he knows and calls his sheep by name. He knows and calls his sheep by name. Now, virtue of you know, farming, I think for many of us, we have you know, Australian images of sheep farming or perhaps New Zealand images of sheep farming. And we have like, you know, giant flocks. Flocks, herds, what's the collective noun for sheep? A flock of sheep? Yeah. It sounds like birds for some reason, a, a flock of sheep. Anyway, lots of sheep, right? Lots, hundreds, hundreds, thousands, right? First century shepherding was not like that. They had a smaller group of sheep. And often a shepherd would know every individual sheep by name. Sometimes we're told that they knew their sheep because of distinguishing characteristics. You know, the sheep had a spot on its head, and so that sheep was called Spot. Or perhaps, you know, if the shepherd was Australian, they would have ironic nicknames, like, you know, Chops would be one of them, or maybe Barbara would be another sheep's name. That didn't quite go the way I was expecting it to. (laughs) Dad joke. But the shepherds often knew their sheep by name. And so as they called them, they would be calling their names. And the sheep would recognize, hear their shepherd's voice, and come and follow. And the third thing we find there is that the shepherd leads them out to pasture. You know, in Australia, when we see images of shepherds herding their sheep, mustering their sheep, what comes to mind? We picture a farmer in King G's, and the Cobra hat on, on a quad bike, and three or four cattle dogs running around the back of the, the herd. And Australian farmers drive their sheep using their cattle dogs. They drive them from behind. They, they herd the sheep in certain directions using the dogs to muster these sheep together. Now, first century Middle Eastern shepherding was very different. In the first century, the shepherds would lead their sheep from the front. And they would not lead their sheep with a, you know, a, a cattle dog running around the back and herding the sheep together. They would lead their sheep often with the sound of their voice. Many, you could travel to the Middle East today, many have, to see the practice, it still occurs. Shepherds often singing, making weird noises, clicks and sounds, and leading the sheep across ravines, valleys, rivers, towards green pasture. The shepherds would lead their sheep from the front by the sound of their voice. Now, I think one of the things that is happening here is Jesus confronting these religious leaders with the inadequacy of their spiritual oversight of God's people. There was a problem that the Pharisees and teachers of the law had. And the problem was Jesus' somewhat awkward popularity in the first century. Jesus came and taught and performed miracles and people began to follow him and the Pharisees began to question Why is it that the crowds are following this teacher whom, at least in the Pharisees' opinion, is a blasphemer and breaking the Sabbath, does not keep the law? And Jesus comes and says, you know what? The voice of the shepherd is recognizable to the sheep. The people of God long for the voice of their maker. And so when the shepherd comes and when the shepherd speaks, the people hear his voice and listen. But it seems the Pharisees didn't quite get what Jesus was trying to put down. And so he has to speak a little bit more plainly. In verse 7, he says this. Therefore, Jesus said to him, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers. It's probably a reference to all of the, there's a history, all these 
like false messiahs that came before Israel saying, I am the Messiah. Remember, God's people were waiting for the chosen one and all of these false messiahs would come. I am the Messiah. I am the one. Follow me. And instead of leading God's people to freedom, they would often just lead them to war, battle, death and destruction. So Jesus says, all who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the gate. Or perhaps your translation might say, I am the door. It's a metaphor for moving from one space to another, a metaphor for opportunity, a metaphor for moving. If you stand in a doorway, you stand in a liminal space between two doors, between two rooms, between two worlds. And Jesus says, I am the access point. On Friday night, we have a, a Sabbath rhythm of pizza, ice cream, and movies. And this week we watched... Uh, what I think is the kids' version of Inception. It's the movie Slumberland. Has anyone seen Slumberland? It's a great movie. I, I, the kids didn't like it, but I, I really did. But, but the idea of the movie is that these, this girl travels through people's dreams. And to move from one dream to the next dream, they had to locate a door. And this door would move them out of a dream into another dream to this place that they were trying to get to, which I won't tell you about because it'll spoil the movie. But they're trying to move through these dreams and the medium between one dream and the next is this access point of a door. Sometimes it's a glove box in a car. Sometimes it's a physical door. Sometimes it's a, a toilet. You know, all of these access points from one dream to the next. And it is literally moving them through these worlds. And Jesus comes and he says, I am the gate. I am the door. Now, we know that doors and gates have multiple functions. A door or a gate functions as security. You close the door, you lock it to keep all of the bad things out. Now, there's a bit of conjecture around this, but one of the ideas behind this is that when shepherds took their sheep out into the wilderness, they would often hunt for natural caverns or caves and muster their sheep into the cave and then sleep at the entrance of that cave or sleep at the entrance of that, nat- nat- that natural you know, enclave and act as a gate of protection. So a gate or a door acts as protection, but a gate also acts as access to pasture. As the shepherd opens the gate and leads the sheep out, he leads them to freedom and ravines of water and green fields with which to be nourished. A gate has a function of both security and freedom. I am the gate, says Jesus. I am the way to access God's flock. I am the access point into the sheep pen of God's kingdom. I am the access point to his people, to the age to come, to the promised life. I am the gate. I am the door. The great British theologian and missionary Leslie Newbigin says this about these verses. He says, The door is a universally evocative symbol. It's the way of access from one world to another, and therefore also the way by which the reality of that world is communicated to this. It is the way, the narrow way, which leads to life. 
and which one may easily miss. It's the way by which entry is gained to the inner life of the soul. Jesus is himself, all to which this image points. He is, as Son of Man, the ladder by which traffic between heaven and earth is carried. And you'll remember Jesus says in John chapter 1, verse 51, throwing back to that metaphor of the Son of Man, that you will see the Son of Man descend and ascend on a stairway between heaven and earth, drawing those two things together. If you remember back to Genesis 3, what is, what is the end result of the curse of humanity's rejection of God? Yes, Adam and Eve, the serpent, they're all cursed, but the end result is that God kicks humanity out of the garden and bars them at, from access to the tree of life, lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever in a sinful state. And so he bars access to his presence and his place and he puts two cherubim with flaming swords to prevent humanity from coming back to his presence, coming back to his source of sustaining life. And so really, you could summarize the rest of the Bible as a story of how God's people get back into God's presence. That's the whole thing of the, the temple, the tabernacle that James mentioned last week. It's the whole point of the temple and the holy of holies that separates God's presence from the people. The entire story of God and his people is about how God's people get back into God's place and get back into his presence. And if you remember, after the death of Jesus, the curtain temple is torn from top to bottom. And access to the very presence of God, the holy of holies, is thrown open. And the writer of Hebrews says that we can now draw near to God in confidence, in faith, on the basis of what Jesus has done to reconcile us back. All of that beautiful, rich biblical imagery is packed into this idea of Jesus being the gate. He is the access point. He is the way back. And in fact, the scriptures have pointed forward to this for a very long time. And perhaps what's lurking in the background of this metaphor here in John 10 is an encounter with, Jesus, with God and Moses in Numbers 27. Moses, who is just about to die, he has just heard from God that you will not, you've led the people this far, but you will not go into the promised land. You will die here. And Moses says to God, well, who... Who's going to take over from me? And this is the conversation he has with God. Moses said to the Lord, Numbers 28 verse 15. Moses said to the Lord, May the Lord, the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint someone over this community to go out and come in before them. One who will lead them out and bring them in so that the Lord's people will not be like a sheep without a shepherd. Who is that person? that will succeed after Moses. Who is the one who will come? And his name is Joshua. Joshua was the one who came after Moses to lead God's people into God's place, the promised land. And as we translate that Hebrew name Joshua into Greek, it is the name Yeshua, Jesus. Jesus is the true shepherd who would come and lead his people out to find pasture and lead them back into the fold of God's people. He is our good shepherd. And Jesus says, I am the gate. 
Anyone who enters through me will be saved. Anyone who enters through me will be saved. That's an idea of entering, stepping through a doorway, opening a gate and stepping through it and closing the gate behind it. That, that's a metaphor for faith. It's a metaphor for trusting in Jesus. Jesus says, if you want access to God, to his presence, to his kingdom, to his people, his flock, the way in is by faith in me. I am the gate. I am the access point. I am the door. Now, perhaps if you're not a Christian here this morning, you wouldn't say, yes, I I follow Jesus. I worship him. There's a natural objection that's arising in your mind as you hear this. Because you hear this teaching from Jesus, you think, well, well, if Jesus claims to be the access point to God's kingdom or heaven or whatever you want to call it, and to enter through him is to be saved, then that means by implication that all of the other ways aren't the way. All of the other religions in the world aren't the access point. And that sounds rather intolerant. How could Jesus claim to be the only way, which he will more explicitly in John chapter 14. We'll get to that one. But how can Jesus claim to be the, the only access point? Surely in our modern pluralistic postmodern society, it would be better to suggest that there's a sheep pen with lots of different doors around the outside. And you can come via Jesus, or you can come via Muhammad, or you can come via Buddha, or you can come by any other access point that you wish, but they all just lead to the same pen. Well, that's exactly what the Baha'i faith teaches. If you've ever visited a Baha'i temple, they're beautiful buildings, but they've been constructed in a very particular way. Every Baha'i temple, I, th- I think this is correct, but every Baha'i temple is constructed with nine separate entryways. You can enter the the temple from any of these nine separate entryways, and they all have corridors that lead to the central sanctuary, the place of worship. And it's a very clear way of saying our faith, the Baha'i faith says every access point is equally valid and true. Come, irrespective of religion, irrespective of worldview, irrespective of faith background, come. Now, it sounds appealing. It sounds beautiful. It's, It's just, I mean, it's so postmodern and PC, but there are some significant problems with it. Because that, along with secular pluralism that says there is no real objective truth here in any of these claims. They're all just, they're all okay. If it's true for you, it's true for you. If it's not true for you, that's fine. The problem with that is, well, there's a couple of things. The first is that to say that every other faith, worldview, belief, They're all equally valid. They all lead to the same point. That is a very objective statement that none of the other faith claims make. So effectively, it says, you're all wrong and this view is right, which is the exact accusation that is being leveled at the Christian faith for being intolerant. It's a very intolerant position to hold. The other problem is that every other religion does not claim that. They all claim contradictory beliefs. They can't all possibly be true. A brilliant philosopher and thinker. His, his uh, name is Os Guinness, and he makes the point that when we relativize truth, when we say that truth is subjective, 
the consequence is that we open ourselves up to manipulation. Because if truth is subjective, then we need, we cannot be convinced by truth. Truth does, it holds no swaying power in terms of convincing people about belief, about worldview, about faith. And the only choice we have then is just to be manipulated. And it becomes about power. Words then are about power and manipulation. None of us, particularly in the West, like the idea or concept of being manipulated. Now, I want to suggest to you that Jesus' radical claim here, his claim about being the gate, is an objective truth claim that we simply cannot ignore by saying, well, it's, if that's true for you, that's good for you. Jesus is claiming here, when he says, I am, he's capturing all of this imagery from Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush, and he's saying to anyone who has the ears to listen, in the original language, ego eimi, I am the gate. If you want access to God, come. It's through me. And to the degree that the church begins to bow to the pressures of a secular culture that says, this is all relative. To, to the degree that we do that is the degree that we will lose our call as God's people. And the very thing that dies when we let go of Jesus' exclusive claim is the mission of God's people. Because as soon as Jesus is just one amongst many, what's the point? We have no mission. We have no purpose. And in the end, this just becomes a really lame Sunday hobby, if we're honest. I had a bunch of notes here that have not updated in my drive at all. So I'm just going to ad-lib the last bit of this sermon here. Jesus comes and he offers a specific challenge to the religious leaders about what leadership looks like. You are laying the law as a crushing burden on the people. And Jesus says, I've come to offer a better way, a new way. He also offers an invitation to the sheep. He says there in John 10, 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. This is not material wealth. It's not what Jesus promises and offers here. A full life is some, you know, version of the Western Sydney dream, home ownership, great career, live by the beach or the water, you know, two and a half kids, a nice house that you own, a nice, safe, comfortable car with 25 airbags, and we've just sprinkled Jesus on the top, right? That's not what Jesus is promising here when he says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. When he says this, he's saying, I have come that you may have the type of, and it's not even just like eternal life, right? Life that never ends. Although that's true, that's a part of this. Jesus is saying, I have come to offer you the type of life that you were always intended to live. The type of life that God offered our, our, the human race in the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden. The type of life where people would walk and experience God face to face. And live in a world where we were designed to be in relationship with God, not in a world that is fractured by the brokenness of sin. It's the life that we were created and designed to live and experience. 
life with purpose, life with meaning, life with significance, and yes, life everlasting. That's what Jesus comes to offer us. And so I wonder this morning, for those of you who are listening, do you hear the shepherd's voice? Do you hear the shepherd's voice? Perhaps you, you're not a Christian, you're seeking, you're searching, you're looking for something. We would love to be on a journey with you to help you see that Jesus is the answer to that yearning that your soul has. But for those of you who are Christians, who are disciples, apprentices of Jesus, where, where are you looking for your security and your freedom? Where, where are the things that are captivating and meeting those desires? Perhaps for security, you're looking for your retirement plan, your financial portfolio, your home ownership, perhaps leaning on the generosity of your parents. Where are you looking for your security? Where are you looking for your freedom? Travel? experiences, a relationship? What, where is it? All of, all of these things are good gifts from God, but what happens when we receive them? And all too often here in Sydney, we get them in abundance, right? We have been blessed with these material things, but, but two things can happen when we receive them. One is those blessings can begin to lull us into a false sense of security, that our freedom and our security lie in these things and not in Jesus himself. And the second is we can invest so much in them. And often when we do get them, we begin to see that they just don't satisfy the way that we were hoping they would. And so my question to you this morning is, are you listening to the voice of your shepherd? Do you hear the voice of our good shepherd and savior Jesus who says, I am the gate, come, come to me. Enter through the gate and you will find the security that you simply cannot get anywhere on this earth. The security of knowing that you are mine and that on the last day I will raise you up to experience God's presence in His place. Are you hearing the voice of your shepherd who says, I am the gate, come. I will lead you out to find pasture, to nourish your soul, to strengthen your faith. Are we trusting in Him? He is a good shepherd. He is the gate. And He's beckoning everyone who would have the ears to hear to come and find life in Him. Well, we're going to respond together to this word. We're going to respond in the Lord's Supper as the band comes up. The Lord's Supper is a, a meal, a, a tangible reminder of what Jesus has done for us. Of the back of the room, there's two stations with bread and grape juice on them. They're both symbols of what Jesus has done for us. The bread representing His body broken. The grape juice representing His blood poured out for us, for our forgiveness. And this meal is for those of you who love Jesus, who follow Him. And we invite you to go to the back during this next couple of songs and partake in this meal as a reminder of the gospel as a reminder of the access that God grants us, that Jesus grants us to the presence of God. We invite you to stand as we...
pray together and respond this morning to our good and gracious Father. The Stad Church. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have not left us as sheep without a shepherd. We thank you that you have not left us to wander the wilderness alone, without safety, without pasture. We thank you that you care. Jesus, we thank you that you are the gate, the good shepherd. We thank you that you grant us access back. God, this morning I pray that you'd help us to be a people would have our faith, our trust, our sense of freedom and security firmly located in what Jesus has done for us. Forgive us, Lord, for the times that we find our freedom and security in other places. We know that these are fleeting gifts. Help us to look beyond them to see what you offer us in Christ. Full freedom, complete freedom, total security. God, may our hearts rest there. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. And God's people said, amen.